0: We read the word of the Lord this morning as we find it in the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, and we're going to read Revelation 1 beginning at verse 9 through chapter 2, verse 7. Our focus this morning will be on the first of Christ's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, his letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We don't have a Father's Day selection of passage this morning, but uh, I did a few weeks, maybe it was a couple of months ago now, uh, when preaching here, uh, preached from the end of the book of Revelation, and so we're starting at the end, and we're moving back to the beginning, in a manner of speaking. But the book of Revelation is, in many ways, a letter, a, s- a set of letters. It's addressed by the risen Christ, the exalted Christ, to the seven churches uh, of Asia Minor. And also, therefore, seven is a number in the book of Revelation that means the whole, completeness. It's a particular church, an actual church, to which this letter was first given in the first century, late first century, but it's also a letter to the Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church because we belong to the company of churches that are of the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read this word and listen to its teaching carefully beginning at chapter 1 verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches and now follows our text to the angel of the church in Ephesus right these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So far, this reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I said a moment ago that in some respects, this mysterious book, the book of Revelation, a book full of striking visions, is a letter. And it's a letter with a rather unusual author whose majesty and glory is wonderfully described for us by the Apostle John as he was on the Isle of Patmos in the Spirit on the Lord's Day as the Son of Man came to him and spoke to him and said, blessed, we didn't read that part at the very beginning of the book, anyone who reads the words of this book, these letters, blessed is such a one. In fact, there are seven, notice the number, sprinkled throughout the whole book from the first chapter through the 22nd seven significant blessings. so i can say one thing as an interloping preacher this morning you people myself included the congregation of cottage grove christian Reform church blessed perfectly happy will you be if you pay attention and give your ear to this word that the king of the church the King of the rulers of the earth took the trouble through his courier, John, to communicate to you. Now, I have to say something here by way of introduction about letters. When last did you receive a letter? I'm not talking about an email, I'm not talking about a Facebook post, I'm not talking about that strange thing known as a tweet. A real letter, I can remember as a little boy, my mother, who was the oldest of six children, uh, would, while we lived in New Zealand, this was in the late 50s, now you know how old I am, pretty old, she would twice per week write her mother a lengthy letter from four or five pages, and her mother did likewise, and this went on for 40, 50 years, can you imagine? twice per week, two letters, not one, with an appropriate salutation. Dear Ma, Ma, she was called, Grandma. And dear Carrie, Rich, and the children. And it had, I say this because people nowadays when they send these things called emails, they don't even have a salutation. Dear is a word almost always overlooked. At best, you might get your first name mentioned, but no dear, no salutation, no greeting, may it be well with you, and scarcely a conclusion, a cordially, sincerely yours, cordially in Christ. Letters are something that take forethought. They're not just casually thrown out there like a tweet, or I'm told, Emails, if they're more than three sentences, no one's going to read them. I should tell my colleague one of them that because he's always got these very long emails. Now, I don't mean to go too far afield here. What I want to say to you is, can you imagine? Here we are, June 21, 2020, and Christ has taken the trouble to address you, us, his dear church, through his messenger, the angel, who is a courier, bringing the word to you in his name, promising you his blessing, and telling you even things that, beyond encouragement, tell it like it is. And so let's look at what this letter of the Lord Jesus Christ, first written, communicated through John in the Spirit, On the Lord's Day, notice, this is the Lord's Day, in the Spirit we come into God's presence and Christ wishes to speak to us by means of this letter. And I want us to notice several things as we consider it together. First of all, how he identifies himself. The author of a letter is not a matter of indifference. So the author of the letter, who is he? Who speaks to us? in this letter. Who wrote the letter ultimately? Secondly, I want you to notice what he says about what he approves. His word of commendation. He doesn't start with a negative word, a word of criticism. He begins with a word of commendation. I know your work, he says. I'm familiar with your circumstance and who you are and what you're doing. So not only the author, also the commendation that he extends to them, the praise that he offers them. Thirdly, notice he does have a word of criticism. He's not like the preacher who wants to whitewash the sepulcher or paper over the crack in the wall. Uh, he's not a itching ears preacher who accommodates his message, if it, even if it hurts, better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. He loves the church. He cares about the church. And so he's willing even to call to attention where they've fallen short. And then lastly, notice what he promises. A promise that no president of these United States, no worldly king, prince, queen, no person of great prominence, no celebrity could ever promise. If you heed this word, you will have the right of access to the tree of life in the paradise of God. And so let's look at those four things together this morning. First of all, who wrote this letter? Well, we haven't time to go into the description. In chapter one, but it's, as I said a moment ago, rather striking. The voice of this one who looks like the Son of Man, the language and imagery is drawn out of uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven. He is himself God. In Daniel seven, the Son of Man, whose hair is white as wool, is the, the ancient of days, the true and living God who was and who is and who is to come. There's no passage in the Word of God that more strikingly affirms the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb who was slain to redeem his people. He is together with the Father and the sevenfold energy of the Holy Spirit, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And when he speaks, it's not like E.F. Hutton. They say people listen. When he speaks, his voice is like what? the sound of mighty rushing waters so impressive majestic lustrous in the brilliance like the shining of the Sun in the noonday. when John sees him he doesn't run into his presence immediately he falls upon his face in abject fear and one of the most wonderful things in the book of Revelation is it says the Son of Man placed his hand upon him and said, do not be afraid. I do not come to destroy. I come to grant life. I am the one who was dead but is alive. I have the keys of life and of Hades. By the way that language his voice is like the sound of mighty rushing waters that's imagery drawn from the early chapters of ezekiel where when ezekiel was approached by god himself he heard his voice like the water tumbling over the mighty niagara falls like peals of thunder in a midsummer storm a very All of this is to say, we we have here a letter from someone to whom you do well to pay attention. You don't have to listen to my voice. You don't have to listen to anyone's voice like you need to listen to this voice. This is a letter penned, you might say, by the finger of the Son of Man, by God himself. So you can tell people this coming week, we receive Sunday a letter addressed to the Cottage Grove Christian Reform Church, straight from the throne room, from the risen, having been crucified, now raised, ascended to the Father's right hand, having poured out His Spirit, He came and He took the trouble to address us with His living voice. What does he say? Well, he starts out, I said a moment ago, as is true of most of the letters, almost all of them have a word of commendation and then also a word of critique, a kind of an assessment of the congregation. Where it is strong, where it is weak. In one instance, it's only, con- it's only critical. One instance, it's only commendation. In this case, the first letter to the church in Ephesus, there's both commendation and condemnation. Let's start with the positive, where our Lord begins. These are the words of Him, that is Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the ruler of the kings of the earth, whose voice is like the thundering of mighty waters. I am the one who holds, and the verb there is very strong, I have the church, the stars of the church, in the firm grip of my right hand." Now we're told in chapter one that the stars are the angels of the churches and commentators on Revelation are all over the place as to who are these angels. Are they actual angels? The word angel means heavenly messenger. So by means of angels this message is conveyed and brought to the church. There are others, and it's not an unlikely reading, who say whomever is the messenger the courier as i used the word a moment ago the one who carries the message received from christ that's the one the angel the star of the church the minister of the word of god in every place who is but a conduit a channel you don't want to hear his voice you want to hear through his weak feeble inept at times sinful voice, the true voice of Christ. I don't know whether you think of it that way when the Word of God is spoken, when we assemble on the Lord's day in the Spirit as God's people, that however far short the minister who carries the Word may fall. He may be an earthen vessel, as Paul says, but he comes with a treasure, an inestimable treasure. He's a clay jar, but he has In his hands and through his mouth, the authority to minister the word that Christ himself would speak to us. So you can say you not only received in Cottage Grove on the Lord's Day a word in the Spirit from the living Christ, but through the angel, the messenger, the courier who brought it to you and he's one whom Christ has in his firm grip. In his right hand, the seven stars are held among the seven golden lampstands, which are, we're told in chapter one, the churches, including the church in Ephesus. Now notice what he says by way of commendation, I know your deeds. Now that's interesting. You know, I come I've already referred to myself more than once this morning as an interloper. I'm not a member of the Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church. I don't live too far away. I've been here before. You know me. I know you. But I don't really know you. Have you ever considered that when Christ speaks his word in season to the church in Ephesus and also to us, of him it can be said, that's why his eyes are like blazing fire. They pierce through the darkness. He knows you, you might say to use an idiomatic expression like the back of his hand. He knows you better than you know yourself. He understands your circumstance more thoroughly than you can understand it. And so it's a particularly warm-hearted thing that he calls to the Ephesian church's attention. I'm aware of the work you've done. I'm fully conscious that you have worked hard and that you've persevered in your Christian walk I notice that I appreciate it I commend you for it I don't know whether you ever get weary in well-doing maybe there are times seasons when you say it's not worth it all this work not appreciated no one notices and such little fruit it's not yours to ensure the fruit It's yours to do the work that the Lord's called you to do. And when you do it, note well, he takes notice. He's not unaware. He commends your hard work and your perseverance. Something else, he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. It's interesting that in the book of Acts, You recall Paul ministered three years in Ephesus, the apostle, and he spoke to the elders in his farewell sermon. And what did he say to them? He says, there will be wolves dressed in sheep's clothing who will come among you and will endeavor to lead you away from the word that I, an apostle, and the other apostles have spoken And so you see, in this case, our Lord's servant, the Apostle Paul, was right. Apparently, this church in Ephesus was a church, like many churches, where there came among them some who professed to speak in God's name, called themselves, identified themselves as apostles, but they sifted. They were discerning. They were like the Bereans. They tested the word that was spoken. Did it measure up? Did it hold to the pattern of sound words? They were, if I may use a word that's not often thought as a commendable word, but Christ commends them for it, they were orthodox. They were not ashamed as a congregation to have the reputation that we will not abide in this place false teaching no matter who it is and in whose name it's spoken I know your hard work I commend you for it I know that you are discerning you are careful to take the measure of the word spoken to you in Christ's name and if it doesn't measure up you reject it you do not receive it and that's a word in season also for us if we work hard we endure We labor, whatever the results of that hard work, Christ commends us for it. If we seek to be faithful to his word, to adhere to the apostolic teaching that has been entrusted to us, that too, says Christ, I commend you for that. But then he also goes on to say this. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And if you drop down to verse 6... You read, but you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, we're told about the Nicolaitans in a subsequent letter, but who are these strange Nicolaitans? Well, they're t- we're told elsewhere in another letter uh, that they were uh, a group of people a little bit like Balaam who tried to entice the children of Israel in the midst of their uh, approach to the promised land to accommodate to the idolatries and to even the sexual immorality that attended the worship of the surrounding peoples. Now Ephesus, you know something about Ephesus, it was one of the four great cities of Asia Minor, some 250,000 people at the time of the writing of this letter. It had one of the seven great wonders of the world, the temple to the God goddess Artemis, or the goddess Diana. If you read in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, you'll discover that that religious worship that took place at this glorious temple, I'm told, four times as large as the Parthenon. People would make pilgrimages to Ephesus to do obeisance, worship, and present offerings and sacrifices, and we know in Acts that when the church and the word of the Lord was spoken through the apostles, They were worried in Ephesus that it was going to shut down their business because the Christian church would not make sacrifices and join the temple worship and indulge the kind of sexual immorality associated with what took place in the temple to the goddess Diana. They were worried that their economy would suffer if too many people followed the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when our Lord commends the church in Ephesus he's commanding them because of their resilience their unwillingness to cut corners to go along in order to get along to be successful in business at the price of faithlessness in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and so there's much for which the church in Ephesus is commended by our Lord Jesus Christ. And it reminds you and me also, not only that we should work hard knowing that the Lord commends us for our labor in the Lord, it is not in vain, that we should be discerning as God's people, as his church, and we should resist the easy way forward when it involves compromise in the worship and service of the one only true and living God. That's a pretty good list of things for which the church in Ephesus is commended. But now notice in the third place there is a word of criticism. Yet I hold, says the Lord, this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Literally the language is, as some translations render it, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Now Commentators are a little bit all over the map on this. Is it their love for God? Their devotion and zeal for God's kingdom that was beginning to flag as they moved ahead? Was it their love for Christ that they had forsaken or were in danger of leaving behind them? Others, and I think it's plausible because the warnings of these letters often relate to the identity of the one speaking the way he's described because the warning is God will come and remove their lampstand. Uh, One very competent interpreter says it's on analogy to what our Lord says in Matthew 24. Many, their love will grow cold. But this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the end of the world. The imagery of a lampstand being removed is the snuffing out, the extinguishing of the church's witness, born out of love for and compassion toward those who are outside of Christ and don't know his grace and his mercy. Now, if you were students at at the seminary where I teach, you wouldn't be surprised if I were to say, I think it's all three, not an either-or. Because, of course, your love for God will always be reflected in your love for those who bear His image. How can you love God, whom you cannot see, when the person next to you in the pew is a person toward whom you're loveless, a bearer of God's image, a brother sister in Christ, a member with you of the household of faith." How can you love God and love his Christ if you don't love those toward whom he was moved from the heart with compassion when he saw them like sheep without a shepherd? You see, this was a church that worked hard. It was orthodox. It dotted the I's, crossed the T's. It held fast to the faith was even willing not to compromise with practices that were inconsistent with the word, the holy will of God, but they were falling away from the height. They were forsaking that love they had at first. Love for God, love and devotion to Christ, love and devotion love compassion toward the lost you all know you can have a church that's straight straight arrow theologically got all of its ducks in a row everything is done decently and in good order but there's no heart in it and so even though our Lord speaks beautifully compassionately and by way of commendation. He warns this church, even as he warns you and me, that it not be true of us, as it was apparently in danger of becoming true of the church in Ephesus. It's always a danger, loving the truth, but not loving the neighbor. Having everything straight and properly ordered, but there's no heart in it, no compassion. In it, And if I may, just as an aside, brothers and sisters, say to you, in the midst of the turmoil and tumult that mark our society and our culture, hold your tongue, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Let your voice be a voice of reconciliation, a voice of compassion, a voice spoken gently yet firmly. There is no other way forward than through the blood of Jesus that bridges and breaks down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and that brings people, whatever their background and circumstance, together in the blood of Jesus. Let's show compassion particularly a compassion for those who do not know the Savior, don't understand the things of His Word, haven't had the privileges that you and I have had in being nurtured, many of us from infancy in the Word of the Lord. One last thing, notice the promise. I said earlier, no president, no king, no queen, not even Queen Elizabeth reigned longer than Queen Victoria could say to you by way of letter, even written in her own hand, at its conclusion, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to you all of us who remain steadfast in the course, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Those are beautiful words. They hearken back to chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, where in Adam and Eve we were banished from God's presence because of our sin. We were put outside of paradise, Eden, having no longer access, as we read in chapter 3 of Genesis, to the tree of life that was a signpost of that eternal life and unbroken communion with God and with those who are God's world without end that is only regained for us through one greater than Adam, the last Adam, the perfect Adam the Lord Jesus Christ in and through whom you I can say it to you in Christ's name this morning have perpetual and unbroken and unhindered access to the tree of life which if you eat of it in the kingdom of God you will live truly live flourish Not only a few years in this earthly pilgrimage, but throughout the world to come. World, life everlasting without end. Now, that's a letter, I trust you'll agree with me, that deserves a careful hearing. Don't you agree? May God grant it. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Father, that through your Son, now exalted to your right hand and by his Spirit, through his servant John, you speak to us in this letter. You communicate to us who you are, that which you approve and that which you disapprove, and make a rich and glorious promise to encourage us, to stimulate and provoke in us a readiness worked in us by your Spirit to continue in the course, to overcome, not to be defeated, broken, or to fall away in the course. May we heed, listen carefully to the voice, to the Spirit who speaks to us in this letter. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.